Hey, peace and blessings to you. My name is Jerry B. I am the entree musician, and so are you. Welcome to another episode of the Entree Musician Podcast. And this uh, being episode number five, we are going to kind of turn a corner here and present one of the first interviews of uh, several that are planned and to come here at the Entree Musician. As you know, our purpose, first and foremost, is to talk about the mindset, focus, and discipline of the Entree Musician. And... uh, Hopefully you've been having a great time. I certainly have. And by the way, here's a great place to say thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you who have reached out to us and let us know how uh, you enjoy the Entree Musician. We really appreciate that. But uh, please share these podcasts. Please go to iTunes and rate these podcasts and let everybody else know what you've been letting us know and that how you've enjoyed them and how they've helped you. Uh, This interview is going to help you as well because uh, Mr. Bob Baldwin is a jazz legend in the business for 30 years. And uh, I consider myself to be... uh, very much a student of his. And what I want to do is play a recent interview that we did uh, back over the summer and aired it on our uh, YouTube channel. But uh, I think uh, it's fitting to uh, present this week part one of that interview. And next week you will hear part two, because uh, Bob and I are working together on another great uh, project, a single for our band uh, Sound Doctrine, which uh, was released back in 2006, written by the incredible Jim Kokenauer, a ballad called Small Mouth Bass. And Bob said, hey, let me uh, put my fingers at work on that again. And, uh, you know, he took it back into his studio and you know, put his magic back into play on it. And we're doing a radio campaign and uh, are going to be promoting the uh, retrospective Sound Doctrine's Treasure, which is kind of a snapshot of our first 20 years together as a band as we launch out into 2020 into the unknown for more great adventures. So uh, this interview is very uh, personal to me because Bob has been that type of guy who is not too big in his career to come down to the indie level and help us out. As I mentioned before, uh, Reagan Whiteside is one of the great artists that he works with down in Atlanta, and Reagan and her husband Dennis are doing fantastic, always on the Billboard contemporary charts. And uh, so we're grateful for the opportunity Uh, that Bob has extended to us. And what you will hear, as I said before, is part one this week of our very funny, very engaging uh, interview. And then next week, we'll have part two of uh, our conversation. So I'm going to press play and we're going to begin the interview and then I'll come back uh, later and wrap things up. Enjoy. I'm sure you will. Hey, peace and blessings to you. My name is Jerry B. I am the entree musician, and so are you. I got to tell you, this is the conversation I've always wanted to have ever since we began doing interviews here at the Entree Musician, because not only am I a fan of this gentleman right here, I consider myself to be a student, 
because of his impeccable production, because of the longevity of his career, and with him being a giant in the industry, he still has time to take calls from little guys like me. I am so grateful for Mr. Bob Baldwin. What's happening, sir? Bro, (laughs) that's quite quite an introduction, man. (laughs) Thank you, man. How are you feeling today? I'm doing absolutely excellent, as I know you are. Uh, bro, listen, I'm still here. I'm still alive. I'm still playing music. I woke up this morning and I felt all my limbs. So I'm I'm totally 100%. <laughs> absolutely. You know, we, we have a lot to talk about. I mean, I'm, uh, I, I am just in awe of your stellar career. 30 years in the business, 25 albums and counting. We're going to talk about all of that and so much more after we do this. You know, all of our videos are sponsored by the great people at Vocal, and Vocal is the only beverage on the planet which is designed to soothe, refresh, and restore your voice. If you talk all day or sing all night, you got to get yourself some Vocal. Go to drinkvocal.com to learn more. I need you to send me a pound of that, man, because I I do a lot of talking. Absolutely. Yeah, you got a case coming in the mail, that's for sure. (laughs) FedEx, baby, FedEx. <laughs> Before we go on, man, I I, uh, I want to make sure that we give props where they are due, and that's to dedicate this episode to the memory of both of our friend, uh, the late, great, incredible Kim Hines, sound man extraordinaire. Absolutely. Um, I met Kim, wow, 20 years ago when I was on the road with Marion, mm-hmm. and uh he was just a, a warm spirited brother and and but the sound he was getting out of a out of a, a soundboard was out of this world and uh i just uh, missed that he uh left us uh, so soon man it was a good brother absolutely great great friend and uh was sound sound uh, man for us as well and uh, honorary percussionist so he'd set up the sound system for our band mm-hmm. and then he'd set his congos up so <laughs> And hang out. And it was so cool of you. I believe you and Marion attended his funeral services, man, here in Youngstown, mm-hmm. Ohio. So mm-hmm. peace and blessings to him and his family. Absolutely, man. Good brother. Man, definitely, definitely somebody I, I miss. We used to talk all the time. Even even while he was sick, we were we were on the phone, you know, talking yeah. every week or so, just checking up on him, man, because I, you know, I knew how severe his uh, illness was. And just, again, just gone too soon. Absolutely. And God, God bless Land who took care of him. I mean, I attended their, um, their wedding and Ken had already been diagnosed at that time. And for that brother to get up out of his wheelchair and walk mm-hmm. to his bride, I'll never forget it. Excellent. Yeah, that was amazing. I didn't see that, but I, I know that was a, definitely a picture to behold. Without fail. Without fail. So Tell me about you. There's so many things to talk about, Bob. There's, if we were to go down your extensive discography, we would be here into next Wednesday sometime. What I want to do, though, is, is I know that you have great love and respect for your father. Your dad was uh, your entrance into the music industry? Uh, yes, my father uh, was a jazz pianist. He wasn't professional, but he was an amazing musician. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, even even he was working full time uh, as an engineer, so he was an engineer by night, by day, and musician by night. So he was using, as he would say, both sides of his brain, the analytical and the creative. And he did them quite well. He, he used to draw schematic designs of 
TV sets by hand. Wow. And um, he used to also tune his own piano. I, I need to throw that in there. But when I was, uh, oh, when he was, um, when he was actively working around uh, where he lived, he was uh, just north of New York City uh, in Westchester County. Um, two bass players that he absolutely adored working with. One was Art Davis, who was the last known bass player for uh, John Coltrane before he passed. I see. And also Keeter Betts, who was the uh, who was actually married to Ella Fitzgerald at the time, but they used to do duet gigs together all the time because they, they all lived in the area. That area in Westchester County has some pretty rich rich history. Um, Hugh Masekela uh, moved up there in the 60s when he escaped apartheid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Cap Calloway lived up there. Um, Frank Foster, who directed the uh, Duke Ellington Orchestra, uh, lived up there. So there was, there was a lot of music. And Atlantic Star lived in Greenberg, New York as well. And wow. they're, they're, they're like the, the jewels of of, uh, of the county. So we come from a nice, uh, rich county of, of music. But dad taught me when I was uh, six years old how to play. Mm-hmm. To have all this great jazz in the uh, in his archives. He was playing Miles Davis and, and, and Herbie Hancock and Quincy wow. Jones and Bud Powell and his his favorite piano player was uh, Oscar Peterson. Mm. So I listened to a lot of Oscar Peterson at age, you know, five years old when I was uh, going to kindergarten, and, and that that brother plays so so incredible. I didn't even want to play piano. <laughs> I could dig it. He almost made me almost made me quit. <laughs> I said, "Dad, does he does he have four hands?" No, son, he has two. Oh, okay. <laughs> my mind. So that, I mean, I, so here I am, kindergarten, listening to all this music, you know. So, but yeah. he he planted the seed. Wow. You say something in in your book, which we'll talk about uh, in another episode. But you you talked about him lifting the five hundred pound piano onto the station wagon with his friends. Yes. Yeah. Um, the piano was on the top floor of the house, and you had to go down. I believe it was seven stairs to the uh to the outside and another four stairs to go down the stairs to the driveway wow so he was, uh he's he had this gig in uh not not too far away from where he lived so he went to go test the piano out the day before and the piano was out of tune and there was some keys missing and it was just like i can't use this piano mm-hmm. and of course you know where are you going to rent a piano a day before you, you're not going to do it because it's just you know just a little restaurant gig so he decided that he was gonna go home that that night with his friends, two of his friends. They lifted the piano, and it was a, a upright piano. Mm-hmm. Lifted the piano down the stairs, put it on the station wagon, drove off to the venue, and then at the venue there was another probably ten stairs to go into the venue. It was a restaurant. So the three of them proceeded to bring the piano up these stairs and into the restaurant, and then. If that was enough, he, he sat there and tuned it for an hour to make sure it was right. My God. And I should also add, this is like 1971-ish. This is, I think he's paying this guy about 120. Uh, mm. And so I, I laugh when I hear people saying, oh, the gig pays 120 and you're playing all night. I was like, man, that was 50 years ago. Hush. Right, right. That's right. That's I mean, right. it blows my mind when I see musicians working for a hundred dollars a night and you know working all night. It's like, man, you you don't even know. Uh, right. I think the cost of living has uh, you know quadrupled and and then some since the seventies. 
Absolutely. So why are you make why are you making the same amount of money? That's that's absolutely right. And uh, boy, I really don't want to get into the book right now, but <laughs> you push the button. I have to say this because you have a section in there for musicians uniting. And if a musician takes a stand in a certain venue and says, well, we're not going to play for that, you got 50 other bands, 50 other musicians that come in and play for less. And so there is no unity. There's no establishment. No and it devalues every, every musician in that area because of that. And I, I don't know why musicians insist on doing it. They say they want to get exposed, but, you know, there are better ways to get exposed. True. True. So. And you have to be really, really... Um, creative about it but you can set yourself apart and you can um get the exposure that you need without being exploited absolutely i agree 100 percent. and uh, i think um i mean here it is 2019 they're still doing this i don't know if they'll ever get the message unfortunately there'll always be someone out there that that'll want to do the gig and you know be paid less because they think playing in front of xyz people is is the thing to do but until artists and musicians start to value themselves more, that problem will never go away. It's amazing. So what do you, you let's, let's just dig into that a little bit. What do, you, what do you think that is? Is that, that has to be some psychology on self-esteem then. I mean, you know, of course, everybody is not a Stevie Wonder or you're not this incredible musician like an Oscar Peterson, but you bring something unique to the table that's marketable Mm -hmm. And why not concentrate on that? What, why, why do you think there's such a disconnect between I need to play in front of these people and, hey, I have value to share with these people? I think it's probably more the fact that people love music so much. Musicians love music so much that they'll play at any cost and they don't place a value on, you know, their, their artistry. They don't realize that if you're playing in a restaurant, which people are paying money to eat, and drink and, and 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 the restaurant is using money to pay their employees obviously there's a there's a commerce piece involved so for you to be in a in a venue that's generating commerce and then you're not conscious of it or you're not placing a value on the fact that not only are you a musician if you're good you become a draw to other people uh thereby making you a a, a marketing haven of sorts it could be a small marketing haven, but it's still, you're still a draw because you've got talent. And so your draw brings people to a venue where people spend money and eat and drink. And so you're bringing those people in from your, from your following, but somehow it never works out where the, uh, the restaurant says, Oh, you know, we got a, we've got a piece of revenue from these people that you brought in. Here's tears, you know, here's 10%. That never happens ever. <laughs> <laughs> You're you're already you're already sure changing yourself on that, and then on on the front end, you're not paying yourself properly, so you you're getting you're getting beat up on both sides. Unfortunately, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So so now, with respect to having thirty plus years in the industry, you've taken all the knocks, you've taken the exposure knocks, you've learned a lot of lessons, but there has to be a central key. What would you share with the person, the entree musician who's just getting in the door, and I? I know you got to have to capsulate that, but you're looking back in the rearview mirror going, here's a path to take that you won't have to take all the knocks that I did. Uh, yeah, well, part of that, if if they read the book, they could probably avoid about half the knocks because I've, <laughs> I, I take quite a few lumps on the head, as, as my dad would say. But um, 
uh, people have to realize that this is a marathon and not a sprint. And I think unless they, unless until they realize that it's not a, a you know, a quick run, you know, some people have survived off of, of off of one song and, and that's cool. And, and I applaud those, but for the greater part of the industry, um, you have to develop a body of work that carries you from one decade to the next. And of course you got to keep your, keep your, uh, keep your skill set up as much as possible. You know, so it's, uh, it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, um, I've had, I was, in fact, I was on Wikipedia the other day trying to, trying to accurately figure out how many records I've released. I think I'm up to 30 now mm. and I've had 13 record deals. So I, I've had more record deals than most people have had releases. So I've seen enough contracts. I've seen, I've seen the ups and downs of the business. I've seen labels go out of business. I've seen cats go to jail. I've seen all kinds of stuff within this, uh, within this industry, but it comes down to um, having the, uh, the fortitude to, to go, go through it over a long period of time, as opposed to just relying on one particular thing to push you over the top. You make me ask about three questions from that statement. Number one, with the 13 record deals, you've you've run the gamut of being on the huge major Atlantic and uh, many uh, indies and distributorships, mm-hmm. partnerships in between. Right. What, what do you figure was your best platform for you? You know, what was that period where you thought this is the perfect arrangement? Um, you know, when I when I came in on the scene, uh, in 1988, I was selected by Roberta Flack as the Sony Innovators Award winner. Um, it was an amateur, uh, it was an amateur uh, music contest. Uh, 300 applicants were, submitted their music um, unsigned to labels. Uh, in fact, one of the groups that was uh, also pitching was a group called Straight Ahead out of Detroit, hmm. which at that time had two fantastic artists, Regina Carter and Althea Renee. Wow. Both are amazing artists in their own right. Um, so I was, I was a, I was one of the finalists with them, and Roberta Flack selected me as the uh, the award winner. So my first record deal was with Atlantic Jazz, and that put me on a on a really nice platform. I was on on the label with uh, Bobby Lyle and Gerald Albright and Paul Jackson Jr. Um, and a gentleman named Hiram Bullock who, who mm-hmm. passed away years later. Yeah, guitarist, guitarist, yeah, amazing Huge. guitarist. Huge yeah, man. killer. Um, so that was, you know, it was nice to be on that platform for a while. Um, but then after a while, you realize that after you, you know, do the math and do the contracts and, and you look at all the semantics behind a record deal, you realize at that point you don't own the material that you're putting out. So I began to, you know, question, you know, the validity of having a, uh, you know, being being signed to a major and being signed to a major has, has its ups because it puts you on a different platform to be heard. It puts you in certain kinds of venues. You might get a different uh, pay scale and all that is cool. But when it's all said and done, when the deal is over and they, and they kick you out the house, you, you don't own the house that you built. So <laughs> you become, a, you become a, a rented artist and you're renting the, you're renting the music that you created. So, I decided that at some point I was just going to create the music and, and own it on, on, on the back end and make a, a larger percentage of sale per, per unit, which was, was the key. And in terms of longevity, that is also the, 
has been the key to, you know, to being in this in this business over five decades now. So it's not the fast track, but it's the length of time and that gets you in in, in the end. It's it's making sure you own your masters. Yeah, because um, if you don't, then all you're going to be relying on is is publishing, and publishing right now is taking a hit because you know nobody's buying. Everybody's Correct. streaming. Correct. Um, everybody's stealing it on I, uh, YouTube. You know. Correct. Um, Correct. So, so it really comes down to if you're not, if you're, if you, if you don't own your masters and you're not generating any money from that, the only thing you have left to do is to tour. And so, what happens if you can't play anymore? Right. What are you going to do then? Correct. Now you're, you know, now you're, now you're really, now you're really stuck out there. So. I try to look at things, you know, through a, a, a long-term prism. And, you know, that's, that's been my conclusion so far. It's just the, the marathon piece is very important that, that people understand where you want to be in 10, 20, 30, 40 years. What do you want to own? What do you want to pass on to your family as a legacy? You know, you can't pass on a gig to, you, to your kids, to your, you know, to your grandkids, to your nieces and nephews. Because once, once you stop doing the gig, the money stops. You know, once once you once you're in the ground, you have nothing to pass on to 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 your family. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. You tell a story in the book about, uh, and the book, by the way, is called "You Better Ask Somebody," right? <laughs> yes, yes, you better. <laughs> but uh, you tell a story about a, a gentleman who uh, was further along in his career than you, yet did not own any masters at all, and this guy had garnered great fame, uh, great name appeal but no money because all he could do at the end of his career was tour. Yeah, that was, uh, that was, uh, when I, when I learned deeper about that, it was a very unfortunate, uh, you know, find. And that was part of the reason why I, I quested to become an independent artist. I won't, I won't name that artist. He's a sure, sure. Amazing, amazing musician. Understood. It broke my heart when I, when I heard the story, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, but it, but it told me, it, it gave me a wake up call. Like, this is where you don't want to be. Because if that if if that was the position with somebody who had that kind of fame and fortune, where did that leave me? Correct. You know, who had not even a, a, a smidgen of that popularity. And I understand. Thankfully, you know, thankfully I, I heeded the warning. And from that point forth, which the really turning point was BobBalling.com in 2000, where I chose to you know own the masters there was a record before that called welcome to the games but it never went it never went national so the first national record was uh bobbalwin.com and that was the one that uh in fact when i used the the name bobbalwin.com i was i was the third in line to use my name as an artist uh a self-named website jethro toll was the other one and fat burger was the mm. one the first was the second one but Jethro Tull was the first, I think he did it in 1996 or 97. And he was one of the first artists to sell his music on his own website. Wow. So Smart, smart. Yeah, yeah. So BobBalwin.com served a lot of good purposes because when a DJ would mention the name of the record, they would also promote my website. <laughs> and so I got a lot of hits that way. Free, yeah. It was like free advertising. Right. But now, you know, iTunes won't let you put a .com on a, ti- a record, record title anymore because they, they got wind of it. So they don't want you promoting your site for free. So, you know, gangsters run deep, brother. 
Gangsters run deep, man. And, and, and platform, well, golly, again, we may have to do like seven or eight different episodes because, I mean, there, there's so much there when, ah, let me just say this, Bob, because you, you, you can correct me and you can tweak what I'm saying because in the days where the major labels were king, there was a amount of gangster going on, but they tricked you after the Napster, after the liberty of the independent artists, then all of the gangsters start saying, hey, here's a way we can help you, boom, 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 and then it's all pay for play. So nothing really changed in the Well, game. the gangsters are still there. They just, they just changed they just, the name of it. Yeah, they just, they just positioned themselves in a different seat, but, you know, they still... They still gangsters, man. <laughs> and ain't never gonna change. Music business got some issues, brother. It's yeah. it's, it's it's unregulated. I mean, that's yeah. the problem. Right. It's like it's like the wild, wild west. They people can do whatever they want to do and you know, as long as they're not violating any FCC rules, yeah, they they get away with murder. You know, that and it's a multi billion dollar industry, but they've they've hurt themselves. In fact, I will I'll even go as far as to say that the people that were running the business were running the industry, whoever they are. Um, they failed to do something very important that most businesses wouldn't even think of doing. Like when you get a piece of software from, uh, well, I remember the uh, computer store, Comp USA, which was big in, in New York on the West and on the East Coast, where you would buy, you remember you used to go to the store and buy a, a big old box that had like a disc of software in it. And then you take it home, put it in your computer, and you had to punch in this, you know, 8,000 8, digit code. And that code can never be used on any other computer except yeah. yours. Why didn't they apply that knowledge to the MP3? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you put out an MP3 that's not copy protected. And then everybody is stealing it. And NAFTA came in and just took it to a new level. $10 a month, you could download 8,000 tunes. Amen. Right. So imagine downloading over a year, you're downloading, let's say, you, just to say, for instance, you download 800 albums in an, an entire calendar year. It costs you maybe maybe $120 to, you know, for the full download. Right. But you got, you got $8,000 worth of revenue. I mean, you got $8,000 worth of merchandise that you paid $120 bucks for. Mm -hmm. That means somebody's not getting paid. That's what that means exactly. You just spent $120 for $8,000. You can't go anywhere in this country and buy something that's worth $8,000 for 120 bucks unless it's illegal. So the people that ran this industry are knuckleheads. Absolutely. They, they should have caught that. And when they didn't catch that, that was the beginning of the end. And then, of course, iTunes came in in the, uh, the mid-2000s. And they're like, okay, um, they wanted to partner up with the labels. Once again, the label's like, nah, this MP3 thing gonna fly. Right. And then all of a sudden, Apple becomes one of the biggest corporations in the world. Yes, absolutely. And, but and the, the trick to Apple was not just the, uh, the monetization of music or lack thereof, it was the fact that they were selling the iPod. Yeah, they were selling hardware. hardware, that's correct. Yeah, the iPod yeah. and the and the iPad. The, I mean, and the computers, and they just they created a a monster. But they made. I mean, they sold billions of dollars of of downloads. They so they true. they made money on uh, all all the way around. And eventually, the labels got got hip to it. But you know, it was too late by then. Sure. Yeah.
Well, you know, I would prefer a download, and this, this might seem archaic, but I would prefer a download than the streaming. That's just Jerry. My personal opinion is at least I got the 99 cent, yo. Yeah, you're right, right. I, I would, I mean, I don't mind the MP3. What I don't like about the MP3 is the sound. Um, yeah. if, I wish they just came up with a cleaner version of a download. Like a, I mean, 20, a 24-bit wave, if, they could, if you could download 24-bit waves, that sounds just as good as the CD. Sure, absolutely. absolutely. The MP3s, I know why they did it, because they Compression. had to, they had to strip down the, the frequencies in order to shrink the, 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 the file size. And as a result, um, sound gets compromised, you know, like the drums sound swishy. Right. You know? I'm sure. I'm sure. As a as a drummer, you're like, man, I, I did not play my. I did not spend all this money mixing my record, buying all this equipment, so you could make my drum sound swishy. Exactly. Everything, everything that has a metallic sound has this weird kind of kind of vibe to it, cymbals and stuff. That's you right. You know, so if they had just if they had just come out the gate with a copy protected download of a high res file, that would have saved the industry. Mm-hmm. But once again the so-called people at the top who call themselves smart and executives and wear suits and have these fancy desks and everything. They don't know what they're talking about. They, 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 they <laughs> fell asleep at the wheel. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's my truth. I'm sticking. To- <laughs> I know, that's, that's on point. That's absolutely right. I, so, you know, we haven't talked about your career at all, right? Nah, we don't need to do that. <laughs> but that's, how, how do that's you... Boring, that's boring compared to this stuff. <laughs> I mean, these are the things you got to think about while you're having a career. Exactly. But if you don't, you'd be like, well, why am, why am I taking a hit here? It was because all of these other factors that are working against you. Mm-hmm. So in between all that, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to create music and put, put music out. So, but you got to understand all the little, you know nuances that are going on while you're making, while you're trying to make a nice record. So that's the, that's the priority of planning what type of career you want to have. Cause if you're just walking in the, the door to this, there is so much against you that you really have to have some guts. You have to have some testicles, excuse my expression, in order to say, yo, this is why I'm here. Mm-hmm. And in addition to what we just talked about five minutes ago with other musicians who will undercut you for the gig down the street, Mm-hmm. Because that brother is not paying you. In mm-hmm. fact, there's some venues that want you to pay to be on their stage. <laughs> yeah, Crazy. Right. yeah, that no, that's 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 the ultimate insult. You know, I mean, if you're renting the venue, that's one thing. But if you're sure. just paying just to be on stage, that, that's nonsense. It's crazy. If I'm paying, if I'm paying the venue, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold the door, the gate, the whole thing. I'm gonna promote the whole thing. But exactly. you know, most most most. Restaurants and venues don't, don't want to play that game. Right. It's amazing. All right. Hey, let's flip the script. Tell us about <laughs> New Urban Jazz. How'd you get the time, man, to invest in such a great, great program? Well, let me tell you how it started. First of all, um, I, I caught the radio bug when I was in college. And then I went to New York City at uh, a radio station, which was at number one in the country at the time, WBLS which is a, like a urban Frankie band. Crocker, man. Frankie Crocker. I was there, I was interning at the station when he was there. So I got a chance to actually watch him do his magic, man. I watched him for a number, a number of months. And my, my, I interned uh, with a lady named Pat Prescott. And Pat Prescott is now in LA working at the Wave. But at the time, 
uh, I was interning at WLIV WBLS, which is owned by Percy Sutton. Percy Sutton was uh, former Manhattan uh, borough president, but he was also a Tuskegee Airman. And my stepfather and him were good friends. So um, for those who don't know about the Tuskegee Airmen, these are the, the cats that were in the, uh, in the service. And they were basically um, backing some of the, uh, the other planes, uh, which were flown by, by white pilots. And they, would, they had an undefeated record in terms of protecting the pilots of the Air Force. Correct. But the problem was that when they came home and they knew how to fly, they had, they had the same skill set. When they came home, they could not get commercial airline gigs. They couldn't be pilots for commercial airlines. They couldn't work for Delta. They couldn't work for Continental or whoever. And so, but these cats were all very brilliant. And a lot of them just went up and developed stuff. My stepfather was an was a engineer and a, uh, and a lawyer. That's how deep he was. Mm -hmm. Percy, Percy Sutton went on to become the Manhattan Borough president, and then he ended up being one of the first black radio station owners at uh, WBLS, WLIB, inner city broadcasting. So I was, I was a part of that whole um, vibe back in the late seventies and early eighties. And then got my first job at 1010 Winds, which was a, uh, a news station. And I was writing a uh, news, news copy for them for, for several years. Uh, so I caught the bug at, in college and uh, just, I never, I never strayed away too far from radio. I always, always dug what radio was able to do. And I, and eventually the synergy between radio and my career as an artist was, was a perfect marriage. I, um, in, in 2005, I helped uh, low, un, un, um, upstart a, a smooth jazz station in Bermuda. Um, I think it was called K-Jazz. And they're not around anymore. I think they got into like reggae now. But I, I helped, you know, introduce smooth jazz to the uh, to the island of Bermuda, and I uh, did some programming down in uh, Jacksonville. But back to CD one hundred one point nine, which was the largest smooth jazz station in the country at the time. I was driving up. I was driving up uh, the New Jersey Turnpike. I'm gonna give you the exact date too, February eighth, two thousand eight. Wow, my birthday. Wow, look at that. I'm driving up. I'm driving up the highway. And I get a text. I think I was driving up from DC or something. I get a text from an, an anonymous source, and they say, "We're going into a meeting at CD 101.9 at 4 p.m. And I think they're going to flip the format." I was like, I almost, I almost stopped on the highway. I was like, "Whoever this is, they don't need. They need to stop playing." <laughs> it was anonymous. So I'm sitting here waiting. This is about 2:30. So at four o'clock, maybe about 15 minutes to four o'clock, I get another text and they say, CD 101 is flipping to rock. And at four o'clock, I, I, I can't exactly remember who they played. It was probably Kenny G or Grover. They went from that to like Led Zeppelin. <laughs> Just like that, zoom. Unannounced. They didn't even say goodbye. They didn't say see you later, kiss my butt, nothing. They just like bye. <laughs> they just they just, they just turn, turn the lights out over here, turn the lights out over here. I was like, this is cold blooded. But they had it coming because they they were putting up this format called the uh, New York uh, New York Chill, and it was mm. a disaster. They were there was a bunch of um, like DJ, it was like a DJ lounge type music they were doing in in New York. 
they they angered all the people in Connecticut and New Jersey that were listening to the station. <laughs> and the music wasn't isn't any good. They took yeah. all the they took all the core cats off the radio. They took Nita Baker and George Benson and all the familiar names. They replaced it with like I, I can't even, I can't even pronounce some of the names. But this guy, it was just like grooves. Yeah. And so like sixty five percent of the of the uh, listenership left. They they completely bailed and they never recovered. And in two thousand eight, they finally had to like flip it. So that's when I started um, developing new urban jazz. Um, I was working at CLK at the time in in Atlanta, and I had a gig also at a commercial station doing smooth in uh, Atlanta, WJZZ, which is a Radio One property. And uh, so in October of two thousand eight is when I launched New Urban Jazz, and I wanted I wanted to be music that was uh, a fusion of contemporary jazz with a little urban and some Brazilians and some world music. Mm -hmm. So I've been doing it weekly since October 1st and I haven't missed the show yet. So I'm, I'm, I think I'm on number 553 or something like that in a row. That's huge, man. For it's, you. It's, about, it's about three or four hours a week that I spend doing it. And then I launch it to uh, several properties. We're on like 45 stations now. Uh, God willing, we may pick up a station in Atlanta soon, and uh, also the uh, also the Virgin Islands uh, sometime at the end of the year. And uh, we have about half a million people listening weekly. That's I, excellent. Yeah, so it's it's been it's been a blessing, and it's allowed me also to use the platform to play independent artists that would normally get get spins at different stations. So it's become a uh, it's becoming a nice. Um, venue piece for 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 new artists it's a, it's a great place place to, to launch new artists and also new music wow well if you are uh just tuning in or you think that uh you know there's more to go and more to come there is because we have to wrap this episode up i mean boom 40 minutes flies by wow, very quickly right <laughs> but we're talking to the incredible Bob Baldwin. We have more to go. We're going to do another episode, so stay tuned for that here on this channel. My name is Jerry B. That's Brother Bob Baldwin. You're going to learn more and more. Hey, this is the EntreeMusician.com. I'm an Entree Musician. Bob Baldwin's definitely an Entree Musician, and so are you. And so that's the way it was. A lot of great stories, huh? <laughs> I enjoyed a lot of them. There's great information to come next week as we continue our conversation with Bob Baldwin. Tell everyone you know about the Entree Musician podcast. Tell everyone we are building community here together. Reach out to me directly at theentreemusician at gmail.com. I do answer my emails in a very timely manner. So come on, reach out to me. Uh, give me suggestions, ask questions. Let me know what you'd like to hear here, not only on this podcast, but as you go over to the Entree Musician website, uh, you can kick the tires over there and say, hey, what about this, that, or the other? The one thing that we are doing at the website is we are enlarging our resource page. In fact, I've been having conversations with a gentleman named Stephen Reginer of consumersadvocate.org, and they've recently built a royalty calculator, which is a great tool for entree musicians to calculate 
the amount of money that they would make per streams on the various platforms. So you can punch in Apple Music and, uh, you know, punch in the number of streams and it'll calculate for you how much money you will make per stream uh, and compare that with the data that you input into Spotify or Deezer or any other streaming platform, Pandora. They're all in there and it's a great nifty tool that will help you. And so we put it right at the top of the resource page. And there are other resources that we make available to you and that we want to make available to you when you say, hey, I found this online and this has really helped me. So we throw it all up there because this is not my website. This is our website as we engage, encourage and empower each other. So. Subscribe to the podcast. If you know an entree musician who needs to be here to join us, let him or her know we're doing it right here. My name is Jerry B. I am the entree musician and so are you. We'll see you next Monday.